welcome to another edition of the Unicorns Podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. Nick Northcott is the founder and managing partner of specialist health and medical research consulting firm Chrysalis. Chrysalis, which has grown rapidly across Australia since 2016, provides consulting services including strategy and growth advisory, IP commercialization, and a specialist clinical offering to the clinical research and governance markets. Nick has extensive experience advising boards, CEOs, and executives to manage complex innovation and change projects. He's also had experience in providing advice around high-risk matters, such as investigations, disputes, and governance issues, and to complete value-adding deals. Additionally, he's raised over $100 million in venture, philanthropic, grant, and corporate funding. I'm pleased to say that Nick is my guest today. Welcome to the program, Nick. Thanks, Justin. Great to be here. So let's begin. What is Chrysalis? Well, Chrysalis is, it's an interesting question. It's an, it's evolved over time, actually. Chrysalis is, is a, is a, it's actually an idea. Um, when, When I was involved earlier in my career in leading a significant transformation, I realized how hard that actually is and started to kind of use analogies to describe the process that we were about to go on. And yep. one of those analogies was the concept of a chrysalis. You know, the caterpillar goes into the, the chrysalis or the cocoon and, you know, it's got a, it's got a struggle to, to get out of that and to grow and to be a beautiful butterfly. It sounds a bit esoteric, but I really liked that. And mm. people ask you about the name saying, what's, What's Chrysler? What's <laughs> what's Chrysalis? They often say Chrysalis. And then yep. you know, some, we've actually had some clients, it's interesting, after like six months they go, that's like the butterfly, isn't it? And then we talk it through and they go, I get it, I get it, okay. We just went through that, didn't we? And I go, yep, and we're still going through it. You're not out yet. It's still going on. There's a, I've, I've not spoken to you about this, but there is a famous reference to Chrysalis in the Silence of the Lambs from Hannibal Lecter. Well, that's a bit morbid, Justin, but um, <laughs> I have to watch it. I haven't watched it for many years. but I'll send um, you the clip. Thank, thanks very much, yeah. No, no, no. It's, it, look, I think the idea of Chrysalis is we want to build um, fantastic companies and support fantastic companies to build. And what we really want them to build is to enable evidence-based care. And and that's taken a while for us to kind of wrap ourselves around why do we exist? And but that, but that's our mission. And and the reason for that mission is pretty simple. Kind of stems from a lot of our personal experiences. My personal experience of, of losing people to, to illness and health issues before their their time. Mm. And if we have better data, we have better quality research. We have better quality healthcare. We can do something about that. And so, you know, in terms of a life mission. That's pretty pretty good, and 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 that's um, that's where I'm spending my time and have spent my time for the last you know almost seven years of trying to build out a very complex ecosystem of services to um, make a difference to that to that mission. So when you use that phrase evidence based care, can you explain what that means? Sure. So there's there's a, I guess there's a hierarchy of 
quality of evidence. So at the very kind of bottom rung, there's kind of, you know, no evidence, right? Then you go up a level and you kind of have observational evidence, which might be, you know, I saw three people that had X, Y, and Z, and therefore I think that that's, you know, the answer. And you can scale that up over, you know, a much greater scale of of the number of people that you observe. Um, At the highest level, the highest quality of evidence is clinical trials and randomized clinical trials to be more um, specific. And so most, you know, uh, I guess medical care, medical treatments that's on the market today, only about 10 to 15%, depends which data point you look at, but about 10 to 15% of medical treatments, medical care is actually based on the highest quality evidence. And that's to me, not okay. Um, I think there's what, a, there's... what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, okay. So, you know, and I, I don't want to pick on too many specific examples, but let me just, yes. let me just pick one. Um, how do we know that a certain medical intervention is doing what it's supposed to do to the highest quality right so so is it uh-huh. is having a surgery this particular surgery um going to get the outcome that we want relative to not having the surgery yes um, uh, and so it's about comparing the um the, the the outcome for the patient but also the outcome in terms of value and cost and so this concept of value-based care in the healthcare system is really important because if things cost too much, then you end up doing less or you end up delaying the care. So mm-hmm. because there's a limited pie and you see, you know, healthcare systems as a proportion of GDP of countries growing substantially. So at, at some point, you know, and particularly with the economy, um, part of my friend shitting itself, it's going to be very difficult for um, that level of spend on healthcare to continue. So there does need to be, uh, I guess, a resetting of that to some extent mm. where we're, we're focusing on that value-based care, which is evidence-based care. And we know, like, the, there's heaps of research that's been done that hospitals that run clinical trials have better patient outcomes, and there's about a six-to-one economic benefit from running those clinical trials. Mm. Mm. So, you know, the obvious question is, <laughs> why aren't people running more clinical trials? And why, why, why is that? Is it expertise is it expense is it the sample size required is it the time required might be all of that it's it's it is all of that it's a complex question so i mean clinical trials are really a very structured controlled way of giving uh, an intervention and so you need people clinicians and also um research staff that are trained in the ways to do that and follow things like good clinical practice and other governance regulatory requirements so there's a there's a level of capability that's needed and required within i guess hospital sites clinical research sites clinical trial sites to actually undertake those trials Mm. i guess the other part to that as well is there's different types of studies so you might have studies where pharmaceutical sponsors like big companies like pfizer and roche and gsk etc yeah they they actually are making a selection they're making a choice where should i go around the world because it's the only really truly global market in in healthcare which is largely disaggregated into different pockets of local health districts around the world um they're saying where's the best place for me to run my study on this new potentially breakthrough therapy and okay. so you know they want to have the best researchers the best clinicians the best quality site the best governance processes, the best quality management systems, all those things in place. 
And so you, you actually actually get this um, reverse of a democratization of healthcare. You actually get a very um, narrow concentration mm. of the mm. newest therapies going to the highest quality sites, which, you know, are the ones with all those things set up. And so have you got any observations, Nick, and I'll get into um, the details of how the business began in a moment, but our listeners will be very familiar with the race for the coronavirus vaccine, COVID-19, finding the vaccine. What were your observations uh, when COVID-19 first broke out, uh, notwithstanding the fact you're not a medical doctor, but the, the, the race, the global race, to try to find a cure. Yeah, well, look, we're, firstly, we're extremely lucky. I shouldn't say lucky. We're fortunate that the advances in medicine and research have allowed us to respond collectively so quickly. So our capability in genomics, our capability in being able to profile the characteristics of the virus, our ability to collaborate globally, which is unprecedented to yeah, move that and quickly. share information. Share information, share the data, but also spin up the protocols for the trials, get them approved. A lot of the things that are barriers to sites spinning up studies quickly kind of went out the window a little bit in that okay. it was like, you know what, we need to make this happen. Every, every, everything get out the way. Like, how do, we, how do we make these studies happen quickly? How do we get people to collaborate quickly? How do we share the data? How do you respond to, and there was criticism at the time of it's all too fast. It happened too quickly. The, the clinical trials were not as effective or carried out in a, in a proper way or um, it was all rushed. I think to move that quickly requires an enormous amount of effort, both talent, technology and capital. I think what we saw was the deployment of all of those three factors to make something happen really fast. But clinical trials are highly regulated, highly, highly regulated. So has the data been assessed in the right way? Was there the right governance around the studies? I haven't reviewed that myself personally, um, yeah. so yeah. I, I won't make comment on it. What I would say is that I trust the system, that the system um, was put in place to, I guess, balance the risks. And this is part of the kind of ethical review process and the governance review process. But, you know, are we better off? with having you know the vaccines go through clinical trials and get into the population that quickly versus not and and i think that's where you get into you know hardcore epidemiology and stats about the risk benefit of things and everyone became an expert didn't they oh 100 armchair experts and you know people talking about um you know the power size of the study and all these things um but the reality is, is those things are super complex. They require yeah. really deep capability. Um, I think where we, where we play, and you know, without kind of going down a tangent, but is is that story about do we have the right governance in place? Have the right mm. people looked at this? Have the right questions been asked? You know, are are we putting the right diligence over the process? And and even things simple things like does does the site have a quality management system in place? You know, right. has everybody been trained? Are they credentialed? And and so so these are simple things, but they're often the hardest things to implement. They're the boring things to implement, right? But they're the things that matter. <laughs> That's right. Well, how did you, how did you get involved in all of this? I know you set the business up, but I'm keen to know more about your professional background and how you came to start the business, Chrysalis. 
Yeah, thank, thanks, JK. So I, I've had a really potted career in terms of what I've done and where I've come from. And, and at first I used to think that that was, um, to be honest, a real downside because I couldn't put myself into a bucket. And yeah. you know, you're not a lawyer, you're not an accountant, you're a medical doctor. But now it's I see that as kind of my superpower because I'm across mm. so you can many do everything. Different things. Exactly. I've done so many different things. Yeah. So where did I start? I, I started um, doing a psychology commerce degree and I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, lovely part of the world, and um, lived overseas for a number of years, particularly in, in London and Europe. Um, and my first kind of career was, was really in that um, people change HR space with my, I used mm. my kind of psychology background, org psych background, to really understand how do you, how do you, you know, support individuals, teams, organizations to be effective, um, which I still today think is, absolutely critical because if you're going to build a company it's all built you know around people and i think you know the only truly sustainable competitive advantage is in culture and people mm. and so that was fantastic i had a great experience and um went to went to the uk and and lived there and uh was doing a lot of work around hr transformation actually and um kpmg was one of my clients and they were merging across europe and asked okay. me to come and help on that process and um, be part of the the team managing the integration across um, across across Europe, which was um, fascinating. The Germans and the English and the French and um, <laughs> lots of mix. Pro- probably not for this podcast actually, but um, <laughs> that's part two. Part two, yeah, the sequel. Um, so that was a great experience. I got thrown into the deep end, did lots of different things, um, lots of outsourcing IT functions to, to Bangalore and India and marketing to, to Toronto and lots of org design work and 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 did quite a lot of client work as well. So kind of mixed in between internal stuff and external client work. Um, and uh, GFC hit. That was a really challenging time with you know, restructuring and dealing with, deal with a number of pretty significant disputes and significant investigations actually into various different things and uh then i decided to come back to australia to sydney and this is kind of um you know getting into my my just before my 30s and i had a bit of a crisis of conscience to be honest i'd been in sydney for a few years and i was starting to think you know what do i want to do is this really what i want to do and probably what i didn't say at the start you know um don't want to turn this into a counseling session but you know, <laughs> okay. I, 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 you know I, I lost surgery yeah well yeah, yeah maybe it's surgery cathartic cathartic process but um my, my my old man died of cancer when i was um younger when i was mm. um just just turned 19 actually and and uh he got diagnosed misdiagnosed and um We'll get back to that in terms of evidence-based care and diagnosis and the opportunities there. But he got misdiagnosed. It didn't get picked up after a number of years. It did when he collapsed um, and he got taken to hospital, you know, wake up eight or nine months later and he's passed away. Mm. And so that, that, was, yeah. that was kind of, you know, I went away and had a great corporate career and traveled the world and did all this stuff and then kind of woke up towards my 30s. And we were about to have children and... Um, and kind of, I was questioning to myself, well, what's this all about? What do I really want to do? What's my purpose? And uh, I got tapped on the shoulder to go and work for Telethon Kids Institute. Um, at mm. the time, it was called Telethon Institute for Child Health Research. Um, and that's, um, you know, Fiona Stanley and a great uh-huh. legacy around, you know, fortification of folate and bread and, 
And um, so I thought, fantastic, what a great opportunity to go into the health space, see if I can use my skills that I had learnt um, in the corporate world and apply them in this setting. And so that was a fantastic experience. I spent probably just under five years there and was was COO there. And um, that experience to me was, was a significant transformation of that organisation, of the culture, um, significant growth in revenue, um, did some significant partnership deals um, and, and built, I believe, a really uh, great legacy and, and that's continued to grow in that organisation and it's a wonderful organisation doing great work in paediatric medical research and, and translation of that into, into ther- new therapies. Uh-huh. And so if you think about uh, who your clients are, clients, your customers, and how you work with them. Can you shine a light on that for us, please? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, so just kind of closing the loop on that. So after I, you know, I decided I wanted to leave Telethon Kids because I wanted to be more entrepreneurial. That streak in me was um, mm. pretty strong. And so where we started was around um, doing the work that I guess that uh, the standard kind of management consulting work. So what's your strategy? Um, how are you going to achieve your objectives? Um, helping CEOs, executives, um, boards to, to to do that and go through that process. A lot of our clients in that early stage um, were in the health sector. They were clinical trial sites. They okay. were um, yeah. universities. They were, and and partly that's just organically happened. Um, there were still some corporate clients there, and we did some of that. And um, you know, some, some early stage um, med tech, biotech type assets as well. So that, so we kind of have evolved from this focus on, you know, growth advisory strategy, commercialization, um, till we kind of got to, the, got to the point where we kind of started to, well, I started to ask the question about, can we be more involved in some of those things? And so we evolved into um, taking positions in some of these assets and right. being active yes. in managing and running those companies and that's been amazing i've, I've really loved that um and um, made good friends and had a very exciting time in in commercializing those 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 new products and services mm. um the next kind of evolution of chrysalis has been um really around i guess second and third service lines of the business um the second line is really around clinical research governance and so we, we kind of have a, a capability around helping anybody that's running clinical research to set their strategy for that clinical research, to create a governance environment that is compliant, one, but two, also easy to use. Mm. You know, if you think about the, the kind of the world we've moved from, you know, where everyone had a Nokia 6210 to, <laughs> you know, an iPhone. Playing Snake. Yeah, but, well, everyone loves Snake, right? I'm showing my age now. Yeah. But, um, you know, we don't, we're kind of playing Snake at clinical research sites. There's a massive opportunity to use digital, to use um, our, our the user experience understanding, to, to give our clinicians, give our researchers, give the, the administrators and executives of these organisations a better experience of how they go about doing their business. And that's, so that's been a real area of growth for us. And we're doing mm. some really exciting work with you know, health districts across the country, okay. public, and, public and private, as well as, um, as well as universities, as well as medical research institutes. 
Um, and we've kind of have offshoots of different subservices within that. So like our research integrity service, which is um, very specific and niche around complaint management and being compliant with, with those um, requirements around research integrity, which is basically things like, is there research misconduct happening? Um, so that, that's, that's really exciting. And that's, you know, I guess the third chunk of our business is really around more the commercial space of um, clinical trials and helping in terms of protocol design, study design, and okay. um, biostats and those types of specialist services. So we're, we're kind of vertically integrating in terms of how we're, how we're evolving as a business and we're going where our customers are pulling us. And you touched on taking positions in emerging biotech, medtech products companies. Can you tell us, um, are there any examples of, uh, of companies that you've got a specific interest in and some of the projects that are in the works? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we, we've got a real partnering approach. And you know, when you, if you think about the lifetime of how long it takes to get a medical device or a, a drug asset to market. Forever. It's like forever. 10, it's... 10, 15 years. Yeah, well, uh, if you like it, then it depends what point you pick it up and it depends what, you know, what type of asset it is. But if it's a device, yeah, you're looking at least kind of 10 to 15 years, generally speaking, um, and for a drug, possibly longer. Um, so we, we, we like to partner reasonably early and because we're close to universities and those kind of research institutes, we, we tend to have those conversations early. Mm. Um, so some examples would be... Um, Recently, we uh, partnered with um, fantastic clinical psychologists in Victoria at Monash called um, Victoria Manning, and she's an expert in addiction and particularly alcohol addiction. Mm. And that's a, a digital health asset called Swipe, and um, she's run six clinical trials on that um, therapy, if you will. And um, there's extremely strong signal about the efficacy of that as a, as a therapy as part of a, the toolkit around addiction and alcohol addiction, but can be utilized more, more broadly and more widely. So, mm. so that's an example where, you know, the Chrysalis team will wrap our commercial and clinical capabilities around that business, as, as well as technology capabilities. We have a, a CTO in-house and, and really help that company to commercialize from the point of, you know, licensing out of Monash and, and spinning into a company and then, and then, and then going forward. So that's one example. Uh, a couple of others, maybe just to mention, is um, Unimon Technologies, which is a, uh, a super business um, with uh, founders uh, Rob Gorkin and Simon Cook um, from respective universities, Wollongong and um, Swinburne. They're now both full-time in that business. It's a, a super, super company in the sexual health space um, developing the next generation hydrogel condom. Um, so uh, a very niche okay but yep. huge global market with, mm. um, I forget the exact number now, but, uh, you know, I think it's a $66 billion global burden of disease um, of, um, of, of, of sexual health issues, including mm. 100 and, I think 110 million unplanned pregnancies a year and about 1 million STIs per day. And those 1 million STIs per day are increasing in terms of antimicrobially resistant <laughs> Uh, infections. Right? Yeah. 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 So, so you get things like, you know, gonorrhea that just can't go away. Right. So, so, you know, the number one reason people don't use condoms is feel. And so mm. the value prop for this is creating, using new materials to create 
a better feeling, um, better quality condom. So that's a, a very exciting project and we're doing some interesting stuff in advanced manufacturing and um, have wonderful support from folks like the New South Wales Medical Device Fund and the Australian Government's um, Entrepreneurs Program, AC Grant Program. So um, watch this space, but it's a long journey. And what about, do you build your own tech? Do you have any of your own proprietary products as well? Yeah, th thanks, Justin. Well, we, we're moving to that space. So where where we've um, identified our the, the needs of our customers and the needs of the market, particularly in in the clinical trial space and in the, in the clinical research space, um, we are building our own software. We are building our own okay. technology. And uh, I won't say too much about it, but I will say that there's a there's there's gaps in the market of what's being provided right now. And we have a really deep set of expertise across our team. So we've got folks like Professor Nick Zepps, who you know wrote the clinical trial guidelines for the TGA, folks like Peter Keller, who um, was uh, set up the Good Clinical Practice Inspections Program, effectively the regulator for the TGA, who's, who's on our team, um, and, and other really experienced people like um, Natalie Barber, who um, I used to previously work with and, and very privileged to work with again, um, who was head of research governance at Telephone Kids and, and others in our team. So there's a real depth of capability. And so what we're, we're trying to do is spot these opportunities um, mm. and then build them into sustainable um, pieces of software that are really, you know, going back to my snake Nokia 6210 example, it, you know, let's build the iPhone for this stuff and make people's life easier and take the pain away um, yes. so that we can have a, a tech-enabled service or, 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 or a SaaS service that, you know, makes life easier for people. Nick, you'd be very familiar with the infamous case overseas of Theranos and the scandal that developed uh, in Silicon Valley with Elizabeth Holmes and the business there uh, and how that's played out. There's, you know, numerous books, TV shows, there are movies being made. I'm keen to know if you, if Chrysalis was working with Theranos, <laughs> what some of the conversations would have been or, you know, the red flags that would have been raised as, as that business, you know, quote unquote progressed. Yeah, I mean, there would have been many, um, many, many flags. Um, and yes. ultimately, probably if there wasn't change, we would have we would have disengaged, to be honest. Right. You say um, that's it. Sorry, we are out. Well, you know, we, you've got to you've you've got to hold your integrity at the utmost level. And mm. I think I think what's happened there is, you know, they're, they're building a new product. Well, they were building a new product and making claims about that product and those claims needed to be supported independently by data. And mm. so, so a few things came out of that story, I think that was really interesting. One was they didn't have any internal governance around that product development process. So uh -huh. where was the yep. check? Where was the balance? Where was the framework to support that? And, and even at the board level, right? So, yep. um, and, and we've, we've, got, we've got clients where we do a lot of education at the board level where you know, directors who are maybe lawyers or accountants or finance folks who aren't used to this space, they're going, what What actually do we need to comply with? Yeah, and, what does this mean? Yes. And, and it is complex, right? You've kind of got privacy principles. You've got data governance principles. You've got 
um, the Australian Code for the Responsible Conduct of Research. You've got the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality in Healthcare. You've got the TGA. There's like, and that's just Australia. Then you start doing stuff overseas. You've got the FDA. You got so you've got all these regulatory. It's a minefield, right? So how do you know? one, what you're supposed to comply with. So I think that's the first thing. We would have put in place a governance framework across the whole organisation. We would have had independence around the verification of data and the communication of that to the board and and obviously ultimately to investors in appropriate kind of corporate disclosure. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the second thing that's interesting out of that case is when there was understanding that there was an issue or some people identified and they had the right kind of moral fortitude and courage to say something, where did they go? And so um, I forget the young chap's name. You might be able to help me, um, Justin, um, the, the, the the famous army guy's um, son. Who, oh, um, oh, sorry, the nephew. Ty- Tyler Schultz. Tyler Schultz, thank you. Um, George Schultz's um, relative and the, um, the young lady that was also working with him. Hmm. So, you know, where did they go to report this? They ultimately went to the press. Um, but he yeah. did try. He did try to go to his father or, or whoever the grandfather. grandfather yeah, I, think, I think it was. Yes. Um, getting the details wrong here, but went to his grandfather to try and report this issue. And there's a lack of independence there. So, mm. so one of the things that we would have suggested is that there's an independent, impartial research integrity service in place um, that. You know, and I should disclose that we've built one <laughs> because I'm <laughs> okay, preaching my medicine for disclosure. But we we got pulled into this space because we started to do investigations in we've done for many years investigations in the workplace space, but also in the in the in the research integrity space. Mm. And so you know, we started having customers repeatedly asking us, "How do we prevent this? How do we avoid this?" And and one way to do that is to educate, build the right culture. Um, help people to understand what their obligations are. But there are actually a lot of these things are written down really clearly that you have to do in the code. It's an implementation and an execution issue. And so what we've, what we're suggesting is that what Chrysalis would have done is put in place an anonymous um, process for people to be able to make a complaint that would have been independently investigated. And that mm. information would be provided to the board um, and as appropriate to the relevant authorities or folks subsequent to that. And then it becomes a corporate governance issue for the board yes. and, and the executives to manage in the appropriate way. And one would hope that that is, is, you know, is done in the right way. But it's very different to when you hear someone kind of saying, yeah, there's a bit of, there's a bit of smoke here and that can easily be discarded to having an independent investigation report from experts that shows that actually, you know what, these claims that the company's making have no solid ground to stand on and should be, action should be taken to mitigate that risk. It's been identified and, you know, the company now needs to do something about that. We're up against it in terms of time. So final question, Nick, tell us about what the future of Chrysalis looks like, not only for 2022, and you've pointed to a few things, but but the years ahead, how are you going to expand and grow the business thanks jk so look i've got plenty of time left in my career so i'm i'm, I'm pretty ambitious this this mission for us is about enabling evidence-based care so what that means is we really want to in multiple ways make that happen so for us it means partnering with more interesting 
early stage assets, helping them to come to life that are, that are evidence-based. It means building capability across the ecosystem of hospitals, universities, medical research institutes that helps them to implement evidence-based care research um, and, and ultimately translate that, that the creation of that evidence into the healthcare system. And so that might be everything from working with partners to build our capability and continue to grow to thinking about acquisitions to um, thinking about creating more products but how do we start to do what we've done i believe pretty successfully over the last seven years at scale across australia um, but but also starting to to bridge up into asia and and particularly the asean region and we've had some really um, interesting conversations recently about the opportunities to impact the significant population um, of people that is there that has a much lower standard of health care than um, in many instances than what we're lucky to enjoy in Australia. So we're looking to, I guess, grow our capability and, and build something amazing. Nick Northcote, founder and managing partner of Chrysalis. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today and we wish you all the very best in the future. Thank you. Appreciate it, Justin. Thanks. Uh-huh.